Good morning. I'm so glad you could be with me today in our Wednesdays in the Word. I'm in the midst of a continuing study in the book of Romans as we work our way verse by verse through that book, unfolding it together. We're now in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, and today I want to pick up the reading in verse 6 of that chapter. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We're in this fifth chapter of the book of Romans, and if you've been with me for a while, you remember that what we've been examining since verse 1 are some of the wonderful, wonderful outcomes of justification by faith. We began in verses 1 and 2 by reminding ourselves of what God has made plain here. Number one, we have peace with God at long last because of justification. We also have freedom of access to the Heavenly Father because of justification. Sin separates us from God, but justification deals with the sin, and therefore we can boldly come into the very presence of the Heavenly Father. And thirdly, we were told that we were given right standing before the Father because of justification, because we've been declared right and covered with the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, We have the right standing before God because we will always stand based on the perfect life of Christ, not anything that you and I do. Wonderful, wonderful truths. Last time, we were looking in verses 3 to 5 at the issue of how justification impacts the way we view suffering in our lives. We're justified in the wonder of all of that, and yet God has left us here for now. We are still in the world facing the flesh and the devil. And those three realities, the world, the flesh, and the devil, create much suffering and struggle in the life of a believer. And God says, listen, I haven't chosen at this point in time to remove those types of sufferings. However, I will be working with you in the midst of them and produce a very positive outcome. I will work miraculously, in other words, not to keep you from suffering, but to use the suffering to achieve an outcome. And we talked about some of that outcome, that suffering under the direction of God for the life of a believer produces character endurance. And that endurance has the effect of merging and molding our character. And finally, all of that fosters the hope in our lives. Now, Wonderful truths. Go back and listen to them if you were not part of that or if you just need to review those things. Now today, picking it up in verse 6, what we discover is that God is linking our justification and his love. So let's begin to look at that a bit. How are God's love and justification intersecting? What does it teach us about it? And I think the first place that we start with that, we find in verse 6, where it says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
God's love for you, for me, and for all of this fallen rebellious world is seen and reflected in the timing of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world. The word made flesh to dwell among us, born at Bethlehem, revealed to us, living, dying, raising from the dead, ascending into heaven, and eventually going to be returning. Jesus Christ came at exactly the right time, the perfect time. I was thinking how that also is reflected in the book of Galatians in chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. Listen to these words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons of God. <laughs> the right time, the fullness of time, both phrases filled with wonder for you and I. God had a perfect time. He was wise and understood the perfect time, the fullness of time for all of these events to occur. I'm so glad it wasn't my choice, but it was God's choice. God has a timetable for history. Think of the book of Daniel and the prophecies in Daniel telling us about the 70 weeks of years and the unfolding of God's plan for the Gentile nations, leading eventually, not just to the first coming of the Lord Jesus, but even the second coming. God has a timetable. God is in charge of that timetable. And, and a central question or issue of that timetable of history is the timing of the first coming of the very Son of God, the Word made flesh, to dwell among us. Only God is wise enough to know when the fullness of time had arrived. What made it the fullness of time? What made it the right time? Well, it's a great question, but we can't answer it completely because the scripture doesn't give us a complete answer to it. Uh, but we can know something about that right time because we know a bit about the mind of the Heavenly Father, about his heart. <laughs> I believe that the fullness of time, the right time, was defined and determined on the basis of when Christ coming into the world would lead the largest number of rebellious fallen humanity to repentance and faith. Why? Because 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God loves the lost. He won't force them to respond to the gospel, but he loves them. He doesn't want any of them lost. Then therefore, doesn't it make sense that at least part of what went into the fullness of time, the right time, as that terminology is used here, was God's understanding of what the best time would be for the Lord Jesus Christ to come into this world to live and to die for our sins. Because that time, in space and time, would yield the most fruit. And you say, well, how, how can we measure all of that? Well, we can't. 
And I believe we won't be able to really get a total grasp of all of that until we're in heaven with the Lord, where now we know in part, then we'll know fully. Uh, I think we'll see much more. And I will not be at all surprised to see there's many other dynamics tied to the timing question and why this, in fact, is the fullness of time, the perfect time when Christ came into the world. But at least now, biblically, we can draw that conclusion because God says, I'm not willing that people would perish. So doesn't it make sense that all of his timetable is directed by the desire to save the lost? And in some way, every piece of that timetable is fostering an answer to that dilemma of those who are lost. Well, whatever was involved in the timing question, Whatever it was that was leading God to make the determination, this is the fullness of time. This is the right time. One thing that we can also know about that fullness of time is that it had nothing to do with the fact that we were so lovable. It had nothing to do with the fact that we were so deserving. (laughs) You know, human love, as we think about that term and try to make sense out of it in human relationships. Human love is generally a very much a because of love. Humans love other people because they're lovable, because of something that they've done for them. But God's love for us is a very different sort of love. (laughs) We are undeserving of it. We were undeserving of it. And we will continue to be undeserving of it. (laughs) Undeserving of his love undeserving of his care, undeserving of his sending of his only son into the world to die for us. That's the human condition. We didn't deserve any of those interventions, but God loved us. His love is of a different nature altogether. Now let's pick that up a little bit further. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. Then that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The passage tells us four facts about me, about you, that underscore for us that God's love is a despite kind of love. He didn't love us because we were lovable and deserving. Isn't it wonderful, though, that he loved us nonetheless? Let's look at each of these four facts that we encounter in these verses. Fact number one, Christ came while we were still weak. That's the way the ESV translates it. For while we were still weak, Christ came for me and he came for you while we were still weak. The word weak here translates a Greek word which means powerless can mean sickly in in another context. And I think that truly describes you and I and all humanity. Powerless and sick. (laughs) That's the deal. Uh, We were sinful. We were powerless ultimately to change that reality about ourselves. No amount of determinations that turn over a new leaf would lead to a perfect life. We would maybe do better for a while, stumble. That was the deal. We were weak. And to a certain degree, we continue to be weak, even as redeemed people. Thankfully, our strength is no longer dependent only on us, 
but in Christ who strengthens us. So now we have another source of strength beyond ourselves if we've been redeemed. The bottom line, Christ came while we were still weak. He didn't come once we'd proved ourselves and went through some sort of spiritual fitness program where now we deserved something and now we were starting to achieve something. No, Jesus came while we were still weak. That is a love, God's love, a love not found within humanity. Christ came while we were still weak. Well, it goes on and he says, Christ came, he died for the ungodly. Christ came at the fullness of time, at the right time, to die for us while we were still ungodly. You and I, no matter what we tried, could never be godly people. Even when we wanted to be, we couldn't be. Our best efforts fell short. You remember earlier in the book of Romans, that was one of the points. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of us sin and fall short. That's the reality of humanity. And here's the point. You and I, if we are honest with ourselves, came face to face with that reality, even as children. Even if we loved our parents, we found we weren't able to do what we thought we needed to do in dealings with them and in obedience to them. We found ourselves as ungodly people to the degree that we began to have some God awareness and tried to maybe respond to God. We found even in our best efforts, the distance between the time where we were seeking God and what was going on during the week was pretty big gap. And we discovered, no, I'm not godly. <laughs> I'm an ungodly person. I wish to be different, but I'm an ungodly person. God says the second fact about us that shows that we didn't deserve his love, he loves the undeserving, is that despite our best intentions, we are and were ungodly people. Weak, ungodly. Not a pretty picture. But that's not all it says. It says at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly while we were still sinners. Christ came to die for us at this fullness of time, at this right time, while we were still sinners. We couldn't be godly, but we also couldn't keep from sinning. <laughs> you see it? The two sides of the coin. You and I were hopeless sinners. Oh, does that mean that, that we fell prey of every moral evil one could fall prey of? Well, no, we have a differing track record in relationship to ethics and morality. But the fact is, all of us were still sinners. And at the very least, all of us continued to fall short and break the greatest of the commandments to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if that wasn't the second commandment, to love our neighbors ourselves, we'd fell short there too. All of us were still sinners. Had we not been sinners, we wouldn't have needed the Savior. But we needed a Savior because we were sinners. Jesus died despite the fact we were sinners. In fact, died because we were sinners. 
Think of how it puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Listen to these words. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Isn't that a great admission by Paul? Gives me hope. Paul says, came into the world to save sinners. I look at myself and I'm the foremost of sinners. We come to our senses when we look at ourselves and say, I'm the foremost of sinners. God, the truth about me, even in my best times, I see the pull downward. I see the failure in attitude, if not action. Lord, I am the chief of sinners, but you came to die for me while I was a sinner. You came to die for me while I was ungodly. You came to die for me while I was weak. What kind of love is that? What kind of love is that? By the way, verse 7 here uh, reminds us that history has a few examples in it of people who died for deserving other people, willing to give their lives to protect loved ones or something like that. Certainly those examples exist in history. But there are no examples of what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ giving his life for us. He gave his life for people who were unlovable, people who were weak, people who were ungodly, people who were sinners, people who were in rebellion against God. He gave his life for them. That is God's love. That is the wonder of a despite sort of love that led the Lord Jesus to the cross. Now, the fourth of the points that he tells us here about this despite kind of love is that we were enemies of God. We were weak, but at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, but though perhaps for a good person, he'll even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that we were still sinners. Christ died for us. If we go on in the book of Romans, we discover the terminology of being an enemy. Verse six or verse 10 says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, uh, not in our verse today, but in the next two verses, Christ died for us while we were enemies of God. Hey, here, what a, what a terrible picture of you and of me, weak, ungodly, sinner, enemy. Do you see yourself that way? That's who you were. That's who I am. That's who I was prior to turning to Christ. I was an enemy of God. I was not God's friend. I was his enemy. I was hostile to God. By the way, if I want to understand more of what God's love's all about, where we're commanded to love our enemies, all I need to do is think about God's love for me. And that's all you need to do is think about God's love for you. Then you will understand what it means to love an enemy. Do I see myself that way? Weak, ungodly, sinning, an enemy of God. If I do, I've understood God's indictment of us. And I've also understood the wonder of his love in the right time, the fullness of time, sending his son to die for me. As he puts it here, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's life, his coming at the right time, and his death and his resurrection 
showed God's love to us. This word showed is an interesting word in verse 8. God shows his love for us. It's the Greek word sonistimit, which literally means something that establishes a fact, something that proves something. That's what we mean by show in this case. Uh, consider a situation like in a trial where a lawyer brings evidence to the court that proves beyond a doubt the guilt or the innocence of an individual. That is what shows means in this passage. God has given us evidence that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt his love for us. That evidence, of course, is the cross. Proves his love for us because we were ungodly, sinners, enemies, weak, so forth. The core question of the real trial, the eternal trial, is this. Does God really love us? And Christ's coming and death on the cross proves God's love for us. I was thinking of how Ephesians chapter 2 picks up on this same theme. Listen to these verses as I read them to you in the second chapter of Ephesians, verses 4 to 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, again, that's our point, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. Because of the great love with which he loved us. That's the point here. In Romans chapter 5, it's the point of John 3.16, perhaps one of the best known verses of the scripture. For God so loved the world, meaning people, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christ coming in at the right time in this world, living, dying, rising from the dead, showed God's love, proved it, established the fact of it in a way indisputable. We are called upon to respond to that love with repentance, acknowledgement of our need and the truth about ourselves, and faith in the wonder of the cross, the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in him, seeing in him the way for peace with God, access to God, right standing with God. That is what each of us is called to do. Now, to end today, before we leave these verses, I want to say, let's stop for a moment and notice the ongoing emphasis here. Not just in this part of the fifth chapter of Romans, but let's go all the way back to the first chapter. The emphasis is that Christ came to die for us because there was no answer apart from his dying for us. What that means is that Christ's death on the cross was a what's called a substitutionary atonement. He shed his blood, gave his life on the cross that atoned for sin. And it was substitutionary, meaning he did it as a substitute for another. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. <laughs> Everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah 53 puts it. Jesus' death on the cross was substitutionary. He, he died for me instead of me. His death atoned for the wrong of my life, for my weakness, for my ungodliness, for my sin, for my enemy role in relationship to the God who was really there. His substitutionary death on the cross made forgiveness possible, made justification a reality. When I repent and believe in it, he died for us. Brothers and sisters, what's the point? The point is, Always reject a devil-inspired idea that finds coinage, finds opportunity within the umbrella of Christianity at times, that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was primarily about example setting, you know, giving yourself for other people, moral influence, social improvement, change. Listen. When Jesus Christ died at the right time for us on the cross, it was not about example setting. Now, that doesn't mean I can't gain some understanding of self-sacrificing love by his example. But listen, that's not why he died on the cross. He died on the cross not to set an example, but to propitiate for my sin. We've talked earlier about that word propitiation, which means to atone, to pay for Christ's death was about propitiation, not example setting. He died to save the unsaved. <coughs> he died to save the hopeless, helpless sinner. Notice how it puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come into the world to set us an example of brotherly love. He didn't come into the world to set us an example of how to work for justice. He came into the world to save sinners. Nothing less than his coming into the world, living a perfect life, sacrificing his life on the cross, shedding his blood for us, and being raised from the dead would save sinners. So don't ever drift into that view that Jesus' life was primarily there for an example for us so that we could maybe live better lives. No, no. His life was an atonement for our sin so that we could be saved. Certainly we can follow examples, he says, but that's not why he came. He came into the world to save sinners. Are you saved today? Have you come to your senses? Are you understanding the application of all of these things to your life? I pray that you are. Then if you haven't to this point, would you this very day say, ah, I see, I see. I know why he came. And I am a sinner. I need him. I'm going to rest in his work on my behalf. Well, Lord willing, join me in our next Wednesday in the Word, and we'll move to the upcoming verses and look at five wonderful results of Christ's death on the cross that underscore for us again even more His love for us. God bless. <laughs>